All right, welcome to the A-Game Podcast. Today's episode, we have Trey Taylor. Uh, as always, this is sponsored by Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. Go to nicknicknick.com slash links and go under affiliates and you will see all the ways to connect with me on social media, all the different ways to listen and subscribe to this podcast, which please do. If you're listening to it, please also subscribe to it. It helps a lot with downloads. It really goes a long way. So please, wherever you're listening to it, subscribe, download the podcast. It goes a long way. Uh, but under there, you'll see affiliates. And then under affiliates, you'll see get my discounted CBD. William Brannon, Navy SEAL, owns this company. Absolutely pure quality top-notch CBD. Take it for 30 to 60 days, especially if you uh, are a longtime athlete, entrepreneurs. A lot of them are, are athletes, grapplers, doing jiu-jitsu these days, playing golf, whatever it is. If you have nagging aches and pains from lifelong, beating up your body, CBD will absolutely help you if you take it consistently for 30 to 60 days. Use promo code AGAME. When you go to check out any and all products on that site and get 20% off. Also, please go to nicknicknick.com and check out our free ebook, How the Coronavirus Has Changed the Real Estate Market and What Every Investor Needs to Know. Get it free on that site. It's a quick overview. It's a nice ebook um, with some things you really need to be aware of that have transpired since 2020 that you should be looking at and you should also be paying attention to for when they change. So certain things that have changed and other things that you need to keep an eye on to make sure that you are investing safe as always. Most importantly, this is about getting together and figuring out how we can get you into real estate. So that's really the important thing here is whether you want to be an active investor or a passive investor, you want to learn the business or you just want your money to work for you, there's a way we can get you involved. So let's get on a consultation. Again, write to me, direct message me through any of my social media on nicknicknick.com slash links or just email me uh, podcast at nicknicknick.com or nick at nicknicknick.com. And uh, we could talk about it, whether you're beginner, advanced, intermediate, uh, you're looking for lending, you're looking for deals, you want to buy properties from me for rentals or for fix and flips or for multifamily, or you're a wholesaler and you're looking to have me shop the deal out to buyers and we can work some sort of partnership out, or uh, you know, you're just looking for land developments or you want a partner or you don't even know how you can get involved. There's a way we can do it. There's a way we can make it happen. My phone's ringing more and more these days. I love connecting with people, especially my jujitsu buddies my friends from New York and people that I just haven't heard from for a while. It's great to get on and just talk shop and see how we can help each other and work together and bring value. So uh, please let's uh, get together. Let's figure out how to make you some money. This episode is a great episode. It's with Trey Taylor. We talked about his background. We went into the difference between high level and low level decision-making. So this is important no matter what you're doing. If you're a business owner, if you are a uh, an entrepreneur, a CEO um, for a small business or a large business or whatever it is, it's, it's really good to learn how to make the right decisions and figure out which decisions you should be making and which decisions you should be delegating and figuring out how to actually make that distinction and how to set those things up to give the right people the ability to make the decisions and empower them to go and start to think for themselves without fearing that they're going to make the wrong decision or fearing that they're going to get chastised or in trouble if they do, but empowering them and having those conversations. So this is really interesting to me to figure out how to focus on those three things so I can get my revenue generating activities going and not get caught up in the low level decisions that give you, like he says, those dopamine hits that check those boxes, but don't really move the dial as far as your business. Or more importantly, they don't give you your time back to open up more time to go do the things you're passionate about or focus on the things that really make a difference, which that's the thing. Every episode, when I talk to entrepreneurs, it's finding that balance. How do I find that balance between my personal life and my work life? The things that I love and the things that I hate, but I still need to get them done. These are all relevant topics for this episode. We talk about how to uh, put those in those three categories. We talk about how important the culture is 
in a work environment and why you need to do certain things. And that could be something that fits or doesn't fit. And also importantly, when you're talking about culture, if you care about people, why the hiring and firing process is so important to make sure not only they are a good fit, but you're echoing exactly what you're saying you feel about people. So we do talk a lot about the difference in, in, in uh, firing somebody or finding another spot to fit their strengths better because sometimes somebody's not performing, but that doesn't mean that they're they're bad for your company. They might just be bad in that position. So I'm hearing more and more about finding the right fit and restructuring rather than firing. But we also do talk about when is the right time to do that? How do you figure that out? When is it too much? When are you trying too hard? Talk about ego getting in the way. We talk about energy saving tips because a lot of the time you're drained. You don't have the energy for your kids. You don't have the energy for the gym. You don't have the energy to do a podcast. You're using your energy in the wrong places. So we talk about um, organizational design and how to put those things together and figure out how to have the right on and off purpose tasks to conserve your energy for the things that matter in your life. And lastly, we talk about wine. He's a wine enthusiast, the same way I'm a jiu-jitsu enthusiast. And it's really cool to dig in and hear him talk about some of those things. And, uh, you know, I enjoy a, a really nice glass of wine. I've traveled all over the country. I've had some great meals and some great wines and a really good wine is really, it hits the spot every now and then. And when you have a great one, you remember it. So we talk a little bit about that. And it was nice to get an expert on the opinion, uh, uh, get his opinion on what was a great wine, some things you can get to replicate the test of the expensive wines on an affordable budget. So it was cool. We had a lot of fun. He was a really easy guy to talk to, very well connected, very smart, very laid back, and he gave a ton of great info. I highly recommend checking out his book. Go on nicknicknick.com. Let's figure out a way to get you into jujitsu. I hope you guys like this podcast. Please subscribe on your platforms. It's available everywhere. Nicknicknick.com slash links. Thank you. <laughs>
So, uh, you know, we do a lot of stuff uh, with uh, financial services companies and consulting. Uh, we do a lot of uh, early stage investments that really has come on the scene in the past uh, three or four years in a bigger way for us. So early stage technology companies and, you know, joining the board of those companies, helping them raise funds and, and build out the sales channels and that kind of thing. And then we've always uh, had a passion as a family for doing, um, you know, largely commercial investment in real estate development. That's awesome, man. That's uh, yeah. something that I'm in the, I, I, I always look over there when I talk about it because I could see it and I forget that people can't, but our real estate development is like literally right outside my window over there. So oh, cool. my, my ears always perk up when I hear guys like you talk about how they get into that because it's, um, you know, although it is real estate and it is commercial in a sense, it's, it's so much different. Every, everything is just such a unique thing that you really have to be aware of and know, which you know, so um, having somebody like you with experience that's already been through that and taking the bumps and bruises on the development side, I think is probably more important than some of the other ones because the the, the wave of what could go right and wrong is so much bigger. Oh, the stakes man. are so much higher, man. That's true. It's, it really is a zero-sum game in, uh, in development because you, you take something, you tear it to nothing, you try to build something, and the timing of doing that, you can get totally wiped out. That's part of the thrill of it, too. It's part of the genius <laughs> of it, you know, but uh, it's, uh, it's always in the back of your mind, as you, as you well know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So you, um, you deal with a lot of CEOs, and I was looking over some of the stuff on your book and some of the, the things I was reading online. And there's so many things that when I look over and I go, yes, that, that, like it's, you know, so there's all these different topics, but one of them that I thought you worded so well is you said that CEOs spend valuable brain power on low priority decisions. And I definitely feel like I, I find myself guilty of this more than once a week. I'll say, you know what? I, I shouldn't be doing this. This is taking up a lot of my time. It's not revenue generating. Like I need to delegate it. Um, what are some things that, that triggered that? I'm sure it's come from some of your own experiences as well. Yeah, totally. We're all guilty of it. You know, it's because we're, you know, in the flow and you're, you're feeling your power in the position and that sort of thing. And your decisions, you know, are well thought out and clear. And, uh, and then you get pulled into a low priority decision and you want to make a good decision, you know, and you devote valuable time to making that decision because decisions are decisions. You know, some have more impact and resonate into the future and some don't, but our brains really are not capable of determining which is which. And so very often we will, we will default to the low priority, the low impact decision, because it's easy to make, you get that dopamine hit, then you're off to the next one and that sort of thing. Best story, and, and it's a good story because it's not about me, is I had a client <laughs> who we were interrupted in a meeting and uh, the, uh, you know, basically the office manager came in and said, uh, which coffee creamer should we be using in the uh, break room? And he took probably three minutes. It derailed our conversation. He took three minutes to explore each of the options and then decide on one of those options. And I looked at him and I said, that was nothing but a waste of your time. And here's the other thing that I guarantee. He chose a flavored option that statistically 60% of the company probably didn't like anyway. You know, he didn't even make, in other words, he didn't even make the right choice. And so we're all guilty of that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and, you know, that's a cute little example, but there's a lot, uh, a lot of worse examples. The, the prescription to get out of it, right, is anytime somebody brings you low priority decisions, you can't dismiss them and make them feel as if they've made a mistake in bringing it to you. But you ask the question, uh, there's two forms of it, but, you know, basically, what would you do in my shoes here? You know, what, what do you think the answer is? Good, we're going to go with that. I trust you to make this kind of decision. And what you will see is that builds the person up 
and they will go off and they won't pepper you with such low level stuff in the future. They begin to understand uh, that they can make those decisions. And very often I will sit with sort of a smile on my face and let them make the case as to why I had to make that decision. I'll ask that question. I'll send them off and I'll tell them very explicitly, you don't have to bring this kind of stuff for me. You are more than capable of making these decisions and nothing you break can't be fixed. So don't sweat it. Go make the decision. I de-risk it completely for them. That's such a key thing there because my mind would immediately go to, well, then like, what if they make the decision and it's the wrong decision? Now you have to delicately train them and explain why. But I think that last piece you threw in there takes a lot of that pressure off of like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You know? Yeah. Those are the decisions you don't want to delegate. If I delegate something to somebody, they do it wrong and my business breaks, that's a problem, right? So I don't want to get down that rabbit hole. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think we tend to assume that there are way more of those decisions than there really are. Um, and we would know way in advance if something was breaking the company from that standpoint. Most of the decisions that break a company are the ones done in the dark. They're the ones done on secret. You know, I'm sending customer files to somebody that I shouldn't be, or, you know, I committed a crime that the CEO has no uh, no clue about or something of that nature. And um, you're not going to find those in this kind of situation anyway. Nobody comes to the CEO and says, do you think I should break the law over here to, you know, get a little bit more revenue? That never happens. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the conversations that you are having, it's important for the CEO to de-risk um, the impact of uh, low impact decisions on people. You know, over the years in business, I, I'm starting to learn more and more that really decision-making and, and right or wrong, just being able to make a decision is one of the things that I see separates people. You know, some of the partners I've had in the past, anytime I bring them anything, it becomes you pick. And then it's, if I pick it, cool. When it goes great, it was everybody's decision, but they do that so they never have to be wrong. And, you know, I feel right. like you'll never get anywhere in life. So being in the CEO role, how do you prioritize what are decisions that you should be making and what are uh, decisions that you should be delegating? And then how do you handle the response if like that fear is like, well, what if I make the wrong decision now? And then my, yeah. my whole staff is like, hey, you know, you made the wrong decision there. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. I think as you mature as a CEO, you begin to understand that, yes, the final decision really should be yours or the delegee that you put it to with confidence that they're going to make the right decision. So that's a, that's a big thing. Because when I first had the job, when I first got in the chair, I thought every decision, I thought my job was to be there making decisions for people. And in reality, I have to make decisions. This is the, the whole point of my book. I have to make decisions in three categories because I'm the only one that has enough knowledge and perspective in those three categories to make the, the, the right decision and to set the agenda for other people to then make the subsidiary decisions, right? And so um, um, jumping into that, you know, there are things that only the CEO can know because of where they're placed in the organization, how they talk to almost everybody in the company, you know, and they get the feedback and can put it all together with a long-term vision. Those three things are culture, people and numbers. And I may not make every decision with regard to those topics, but I make the most important decision, which is the agenda. This is what we're going to talk about. This is the standard by which we're going to judge ourselves in these three categories. And then I don't make any other decisions. I bring other people in and I say, what would you do in my shoes? Right. And I get really good feedback. And 90% of the time I'm accepting those decisions as if they were my own. 
unless they're just 180 wrong, you know, and then I say, okay, for all good intents, I don't think that's the right decision. We're going to go a different way. And here's the decision that the team will now adopt. I love that, man. And, you know, talking about your book, a mutual friend of ours, Kevin Harrington had done the forward for you. How did you, uh, how did you link up with Kevin? So Kevin and I are in a mastermind together and uh, he and I were sitting around and I was advising someone who had just gotten up uh, to speak, you know, these masterminds sort of do hot seats and that sort of thing. And this guy was working on some details in the business and his business was really off track. And, and I grabbed the mic before anybody else could get it. And I walked him through this structure of culture, people, numbers, and how nobody in his organization was doing that work. They, and I said, functionally, you don't have a CEO in your company, right? You have this one madman happens to be you who runs around and works on whatever somebody tells him to work on. Uh, that's uh, the latest and loudest thing, the most urgent thing, because it's been poorly done to that, to that point. Kevin loved it. And he came over later and he said, you know, that thing that you said, I wish I knew that the first day that I got into business when he was like 12 or something, (laughs) mowing lawns and that sort of thing. He's like, I wish I had known that because, you know, he's a high energy guy. A lot of us CEOs are very high energy sort of, um, you know, on the disc profile, the D type energy, the the Enneagram type three, you know, that guy that is the job is to get other people in motion and keep them in motion. Um, and so, you know, the point was that he wishes that he had known that you pull back and you only do what you're supposed to do and you let other people do what they're supposed to do. He also gave me one great thought that I have totally, uh, stolen from him since then. He says, the CEO is the only guy in the building doesn't have a job description. And that hit me when he said it. And he says, what you've done here is write a job description for a CEO. And I think that's why the book has been as popular as it has been. Um, you know, we've, we've had great traction. It's the most gifted book inside the Inc. 5000 right now that these guys are buying it and giving it guys and girls buying it and giving it to each other to say, Hey, this is one of the secrets that I use to grow my business by me doing less by doing, we're doing more by doing less, you know, that sort of thing. So Kevin was uh, a super good help on that. And you know, him, you know, what a good sort of mentor he can be just a drive-by mentor, just dropping a bomb like that and, uh, <laughs> and having it really pay off for somebody. Yeah, I agree. He's been, he's been great for me over the years. What, what was it that made you decide that you wanted to write this book? I went to a conference and it was a real estate conference. And uh, there was a speaker at the conference who said this sort of throwaway phrase that haunted me for two solid years. And the phrase was, our only moral obligation is to be the person we needed when we were younger. And I drove home from that conference and I was thinking like, am I doing that? Am I, am I being that person? You know, cause you know, we, you're a successful guy, you get involved in things. People come and ask for help all the time. Maybe you mentor somebody, maybe you, um, um, you know, do charity work and those kinds of things. And those are good and noble things to do for sure. Um, but when I was really talking to myself in that really honest place, I said, you know, the charity work I'm doing, I'm doing because I believe that other people need help, but that wasn't what I needed. I grew up privileged and didn't need that. So I'm not satisfying that moral obligation. The mentorship, I never lacked for a mentor because I would always go and find a mentor, ask them very point blank, even at young ages, 14 years of age, you know, 16, you know, mentor me here, teach me this thing that I'm trying to get through. So I didn't need that either. What did I need? I needed the job description of a CEO when I, through a lens of family tragedy, had to sit in a chair that was my dad's chair. He, da- he died at uh, 52, very unexpectedly, no succession plan. We didn't know what to do. 
Uh, we were racked with grief at his loss, much less trying to learn a business that I didn't know, had been told not to go into, that sort of thing. What did I need? I needed this book to be able to sit there, open it, and do those three things. And I think if I had had it, I would have avoided a lot of the um, off-purpose activities that I had done. I would have avoided a lot of the harm that I created, unintentionally just trying to do my best, but not getting it right. I think I would have done a better job as a CEO. I think that's awesome. And that, that leads me right into actually the, the next point, which you just illustrated was, you know, you talk about how your book focuses on culture, people, and numbers. And one of the key categories I noticed is self-awareness. And what you just said, I think is amazing self-awareness to sit back and reflect on that and think about like, this is what I would have needed. This is how I can give this back. Um, talk a little bit about the importance of self-awareness as a CEO. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a universal principle that nobody cares how much you care about yourself. They care about how much you care about them. And so the first third of the book is um, a lot of a compilation of sort of exercises and education around the concept of this is how we need to understand ourselves before we look at managing someone else. And uh, I, I get a lot of feedback that the first third of the book was was as valuable as the other two thirds sort of put together, you know. Uh, from from CEOs all over the place. Um, and, and a lot of it uh, dwells in the work done by my great mentor, Ron Willingham. And Ron is not a really well-known name uh, by his own choice. He wrote 12 New York Times bestsellers, uh, including uh, a book that we did together called Authenticity. Uh, but he also is really famous for a book that came out in the late 80s. He revises the 90s called um, Integrity Selling. So he had a very um, informed view of uh, sales uh, would lead to burnout if you did it off integrity. And so he really wanted to put that message out into the world. He did courses. He's had two and a half million people on every single continent except <laughs> Antarctica, right? Go through his courses, uh, that sort of thing. And his mentor was Maxwell Maltz. Maxwell Maltz wrote the book Psycho Cybernetics, which is a, uh, you know, just a game changing book. Anytime somebody reads that, they become a different person on the other side of it. Um, so I was able to take and sort of distill the lessons from those mentors into three or four chapters where a CEO can come through and say, this is how we are all created in the world, meaning us as CEOs, but also those people that we team with. And we have to have a, a, a base level of understanding that people don't really work the way we think they work. They work in a certain way. And, and I try to explain how that way is in the book. I think that that's outstanding, you know, and uh, culture obviously is another part you're seeing um, and talking a lot about. And, and that's another thing that's come up a lot, you know, core values and culture as far as companies, um, it, it goes a long way. And I, I think when you're coming up in business, you're so focused on you know, revenue and sales and, and marketing and a lot of the key things that most people are, sure. are worried about. You're looking at resumes. And I think that that part gets forgotten about, or maybe not as much attention as it should initially, understandably getting lost in the shuffle. But I think for retention, culture yeah. is important. So if you really are looking long-term, like you're saying, you could get good people in good places, but if you don't have a good culture there, every six months, nine months, 12 months, you're going to have to keep having a revolving door. So I think it's such an important thing that you bought up for people to pay attention to earlier, which will save them time, money, and headaches later on. So I know it's another key part of the book. So give a little bit of a synopsis on uh, culture and how that's important. Yeah, totally. So a culture exists in your business, whether you consciously create it or not right? And, and cultures that you don't consciously create do not benefit the group, they benefit individuals. 
And it, it works when those individuals are pulling in the same direction as you are. But sometimes, you know, that doesn't always happen or it doesn't always stay static in that way. And so you have to do, and, and someone suggested to me, uh, maybe the title of the book should have been, uh, you know, the CEO only does these three things first, right? Because mm -hmm. it's not that you're not going to work on your sales. And it's not if the marketing person comes in and says, oh my God, this campaign's not working. What do we do? You're not going to drop what you're doing and work and help your people because CEOs are good with that. But what I want people doing is focusing first on being extremely articulate, self-aware, and, and striking that good balance between this is who we are and this is who we want to be. And those two things can't be too far apart so that they become untrue for each other. But it's something that you nurture on a very regular basis. And the book talks a lot about how do you ritualize the values. Um, so I just leave you with the one thought on culture. Culture shows up in the, in the behaviors of your people when you are not there to regulate those behaviors. It's like the silent manager that you don't have to be. So if you don't get it right or you let someone else build it, those are the behaviors that are going to show up in those people when you're not around. I love that, man. And I think that that same thing is, is uh, even more noticeable in my circles in the jiu-jitsu schools. You know, it's coming down from the top of the person who's the, the head black belt or the instructor. You could tell immediately what the energy and the culture of that gym is. And anytime I brought up to another guy like, hey, I've noticed this place is they always go. That comes from the top. And I think, again, you got to make that choice is you're going to spread that seed negatively or positively. So you need to make that choice. So I, I think that's definitely huge. I, I appreciate that feedback. And I thought those are great words on that. Um, but touching on hiring, this is such, I mean, we could probably do two hours just on hiring, <laughs> if not. I mean, I, I'm in masterminds as well. And it it just comes up all the time. It's and it's all interesting the time on the agenda. Yeah. 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 And because it, people are in different cycles in their business, you know, they're, 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 they're one quarter and their guy's doing good. They come back the next call. I have to fire everybody, you know? So hiring people is, is as a business owner, a CEO, an entrepreneur, it's just something that you have to get good at. It's, it's, it's part of the structure there, but you've had a lot of really good insights on that, that I think are important. And, and one of them, you saw, you talked about having the right person, but having them in the wrong spot. I thought that was huge because yeah. a lot of the times people will be quick. Hey, you know what? This person's not working out. They're gone. Instead of getting rid of them, maybe replace them, maybe work around and figure out where they fit. So um, talk a little bit about your experience in your own business. So, so many entrepreneurs. Yeah. So this learning specifically came from a, a Canadian psychologist called uh, Elliot Jacks. And uh, he wrote a book. His first book was called The General Theory of Bureaucracy right? I mean, just dry academic stuff. But he was hired by all of the largest organizations on planet Earth, GE, the US Army, NATO, um, the Tavistock Institute. I mean, all of these massive organizations, and they all want to know one thing. Why is it that when I put two similarly situated people in the same role with the same opportunity and the same resources, they perform differently? Right. When I can solve for X on everything else, why is Y still different? And he said, OK, it's organizational psychology before that even really had a term. And what he figured out, and this is so true, and it's the missing arrow in the quiver for many CEOs, is that uh, people have a certain ingrained um, um, belief in themselves that allows them to work for a certain period of time and produce optimal results without supervision. And he was able to stratify that, right? And so uh, if you come in and you are a level one person, that means that you can work sort of hourly to weekly and still produce optimal results 
without somebody watching over you every single second, right? If you're a level two person, that's sort of weekly to monthly, monthly to quarterly, quarterly to annually, one to three years. And then, I mean, he's got 10, 20 of these things. So they, there are people who can work work for a hundred years. They can work on things that take a hundred years to realize, you know, so you would hope the president of the United States would be making hundred year decisions, you know, those kinds of, of strata. The problem is that we don't hire with that in mind at all. We hire for what we think we need and we don't have a good tool to tell us if this person is going to perform inside that role. So we talk a lot about that in the, in the book about how, when you're designing a position you need to design the position to match the time frame of the person who's going to be in it. And the little story that I tell is we had hired a guy on paper. He was a rock star. We put him in the company and he was mediocre. He was okay. He wasn't worth firing, but he was never going to get a promotion. You know, that sort of thing. He came to me um, running up into the last part of the year and said, Hey, when January comes, I think I'm going to go and look for a job somewhere else. Nothing against you, nothing against the company. I just don't feel really challenged and supercharged here. He used a magic word, challenged. It told me immediately that I had him at the wrong level in the company. So instead of firing the guy or letting him go look for some other job, I had a, a, a very important growth project coming into the company that I needed help with. And I was coincidentally going to launch it January the 1st. It was a level three position. I had him at a level two position in the company. I moved him up to a level three. He has absolutely exploded his personal life, his financial life, uh, his work life. He has built out an entire uh, section of the company that we could not have scaled to the point where we are now four years later if we didn't have that infrastructure that he put out there. And the entire thing, which would never have come up any other way unless I knew the secret, is that I had him at the wrong level in the company. And when I got him, when I right-sized him into the right level, it released all of his creative energy. He, he told me yesterday, I never feel like I go to work, right? And that's how we feel when we're in our zone. The problem is people think, let me draw an org chart. And the guy at the top, if there are five levels and the guy at the top must be a five, the guy at the bottom must be a one. And that's how it works. Well, unfortunately, that isn't how it works. And if you think about your own team or your friends who complain about their jobs, and that sort of thing, I, I submit to you that 91% of people are in the wrong position because the time frame of the job is architected incorrectly. Now, that doesn't mean they have to quit. We can either move them to a place in the organization that has demands on them sufficient to what they uh, really want to work within, or we can change the reporting requirements and responsibility and delegation authority inside the position that they're in. Both of these are relatively easy things to do, but CEOs have ego involved with the way that things are. And so sometimes that requires a little bit of conversation. Every time I've done this for a client, they have um, repositioned people in the organization, have, have created joy out of despair. Uh, sometimes they move people out of the organization, which can have the same effect <laughs> as well. But uh, you, know, you can right size the organization to your people. And, uh, and it's a tremendously solid decision. Man, I, I think that that's so huge. And, and obviously for retention and going back to culture, you know, when people see that they're getting shifted and put in right places and empowered instead of on the chopping block all the time, I got to assume that that changes the entire culture of the office or the energy of the company. It does, right? Because it becomes authentic. If you go out there and say, we care about people, but we have a revolving door and everybody that used to work here is an idiot, 
you know, and they and they're not as good as we are, and that sort of thing. You know, you belie your your own uh, statements that you care about people. Um, you know, when we have to part company with somebody, we go to work getting them a job. If you care about the guy when he works there, but not when he doesn't work there anymore, you don't care about that guy. You care about what he could do for you. So it's very often, even in the interview process, if I reach the conclusion that somebody's not a fit for me, I will take and circulate that resume uh, amongst people that I think they may be a good fit for. Sometimes they get jobs, sometimes they don't. I have no moral obligation necessarily to do that, but but we do that kind of thing because that's the kind of culture uh, that we want to participate in. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real Mackenzies, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He's played all over the world and he's also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. Man, that's outstanding. You're the first person I've heard say that. I absolutely love that. That's what we should do for each other. It's This game is hard enough. <laughs> you know, we need some allies from time to time. And uh, and yeah, I do that. I've sent I've sent resumes to competitors before. And the competitor sort of scratches this and wait a minute, if this person is so good, why wouldn't you hire them? And the conversation that I have when the opportunity presents itself is, look, just not going to fit my culture, but I think they might fit yours, but that's up to you to determine. And I've seen people go and have good careers with competitors of mine that I know would not have worked for us. That's great, man. Now, on the on the firing side, when do you know it's the right decision to let somebody go versus restructure where they are? Yeah, isn't this a big uh, a big question? <laughs> we always think that you should you should try the restructure first, right? Unless, and we we go through this in our cultural orientation, unless you do things that we call career ending mistakes, right? So uh, we're not going to have a restructure decision. We're not going to have a going away party. We're not going to do anything if you violate uh, the integrity of our um, culture, period. If you lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, right, then, then we don't have second chances. There's not another at bat. Uh, you're going to find your joy somewhere else, and you're going to do that as soon as I can figure out a way to make that happen. Um, so we're very upfront with that. And in our first orientation that we do, which was the culture orientation, we go through that with our team and say, these are the things I put it on a slide, right? And I say, please keep these handy, refer to them from time to time, because if you do them, you can't work here anymore. So we do that. When it's, uh, when it's a different situation, when they're not committing career-ending mistakes and the solution isn't moving them around in the organization for whatever reason. So sometimes I don't have that other position to create for somebody. I can't build something for somebody if it doesn't benefit the organization, right? Or sometimes even if it did benefit the organization, maybe I can't afford the resources to put behind it, cash, my time, management team's time, something of that nature. When that's the case, 
um, then, you know, we have a good conversation with the person about, we want you to go and find something that will benefit you somewhere else. We're willing to help. Please partner with us. Like, don't tell me to go be your recruiter and find you a job, but, you know, tell me how I can help you. And so a lot of times they will come back and say, here are five, five people that I would like to meet. I know that you know them, we play golf with them, or, you know, I've, I've seen you on Facebook with them or something of that nature. Can you, can you help me? And I'll always do, uh, you know, whatever's appropriate to make that happen. Um, but how do you know when? I think you know when, when you've subtracted everything else that you think you can do, you know? So when, when you figure it out that I can't do anything else uh, to make this person successful in our culture. Sometimes that resides within that person entirely. Sometimes it resides within the organization entirely, but very often there's a mismatch between those two. We try to do it as, uh, as friendly as we can uh, as we see somebody out the door. It's a phenomenal answer. I absolutely love that. You also mentioned something during that, that you touched on a, another huge word that, you know, decision-making to me is, is a, a tremendous one, but communication is another one. As a, as a CEO and with all of these different things, how important is communication across the board? Yeah, it's so important. You have to over-communicate, right? Because you think everybody is in the same headspace that you are. You think that they stayed up till 3 a.m. last night thinking about your business the same way you did, and you didn't. And I'll tell you, I don't mind being vulnerable on this. I, I get critical feedback constantly from people saying, show your work. Remember when you were in uh, elementary school or, or uh, mid, uh, middle high school or whatever, you know, and you would, you would do the problem and then, you know, the teacher would say, well, you got the right answer, but you didn't show me how you did it. And that would always infuriate me, you know, because what does it matter? I got the right answer. Well, I lived my whole life that way. And so, you know, I walk into a consulting client and say, boom, here's the answer. Well, it doesn't work. You have to show people the steps by which you came to your conclusions they have to gut check your assumptions. Sometimes you get it wrong and they'll tell you that and that changes the final answer, that sort of thing. So as a CEO, it's very challenging for me to remember to stop, go back and explain my thought processes in the lead up to a decision when I need buy-in on that decision, right? Which is 99% of the decisions. There are only a class of decisions that I don't care if people agree with or not, we're not going to not do this decision. You know, that's the, those important decisions. I don't necessarily feel like I have to explain my work on, but the other ones, you know, to build consensus and to have other people adopt your worldview as their own, you have to communicate and over communicate. Um, the rule is that you have to say something three times before somebody hears it seven times before they adopt it. Right. And so we build, because I'm not uh, naturally great at that. We build a lot of systems in place so that we have a Slack account where people uh, talk about our values all the time. We have um, you know, um, a meeting cadence when we touch in on a weekly and a monthly and a quarterly and a half year and a end of the year basis on, on various things. The other really interesting model, if you're interested, Nick, um, David Allen, who wrote uh, Getting Things Done, he has this uh, model called the Horizons of Focus. And so uh, he envisions it, you know, how they stage planes at 50,000, 40,000, 30,000, 20,000, 10,000 and runway, right? And I was on a call just an hour ago with a, a startup that I'm working with and I was teaching them this model. At 50,000 feet, I don't have to go up there very often, but I go up there to check in with my purpose. The best thing is when I share with someone, if I'm doing a project and I share with them, this project will impact our purpose in this way. They immediately get 
get it. They, they see how I share my work. And I work that all the way down the perspective level to the runway, which is where we build a list of actions and who owns them and when they're due, right? And sharing that entire thought process with somebody is the model, it's the crutch that I use to remind myself this is how to do it. And I think my team gets a little challenged sometimes. They're like, oh my God, are we really going to 50,000 feet again? But um, they know it's my process and it's how I have to work. So I have a very forgiving team from that standpoint. That's awesome. And, you know, talk, talking about forgiving teams, I think you touched on a couple other things. You, you mentioned the word ego a few times, and that's a tough one, especially for people that are in the building process and trying to find themselves a lot. Um, sometimes when you have an ego, I, I've, you know, I've worked with a lot of guys that, you know, we, we collaborate on stuff and then when things go wrong, their, their ego won't let them take any ownership for, for their decisions or for their actions. So where ownership comes in on this, you know, how, how do you find that balance with having obviously an ego that you're the person who's going to go do things, but when things go wrong or things go off course, how important is it to take ownership as a CEO, not only for yourself and for your business to grow as a person, but for the people around you to see how you handle things when they don't go maybe according to plan. Yeah. I, I think it's just so important. Yeah. Um, the rubric here, and this came, came from my mentor, uh, Ron Willingham. Uh, I was in the middle of something one time and I said, Ron, I think my ego is, has got me here. I think, you know, I'm, I'm want to make the right decision, but, uh, I'm, I'm extremely challenged by how this will make me look to people later. You know, I could be really candid with him. You can be candid with your mentor, you know, you can get away with that. And he said, Trey, do you have an ego or does your ego have you? And when your ego has you, the quality of your decision is going to benefit one person and one person only. When you have an ego, we all have that, but you are working in association with your ego to achieve things for everybody. That's a very different formulation of the problem. And so, you know, I, I have to admit to you that this comes up with me. I mean, I have that conversation with Trey a lot of times. I say, wait a minute, I think your ego has you at this point. What that means to me is that I got to go into a cool down period. I have to walk away from it and then reapproach whatever the challenging uh, assumption is. Because there's always an assumption that if I don't do this, then it means something about me, right? And in that model from Willingham, it's that third dimension that I am, that identity dimension. I have to really figure out why am I having um, a clash between the way I think I am and the way this makes me feel like I am. And I have to have a lot of conversation about that with myself. And I think yeah. that's what happens when egos get involved. I think that that's great. You know, I, I love all the things you're touching on. And you, you had talked about, you know, burnout, CEO burnout, which I, I think is a huge thing. So I definitely want to touch on that. But before we circle back to that, you know, for me, jujitsu is my thing that I, it, it keeps me when I need to do exactly like you said, I need to go cool off. I need to go reset yeah. my head. I need to just check out for a little bit and restart myself. That allows me to check out of there and come back. And I think the humility of being, you know, you, you go one round, you do great, you dominate, you, you, you hit all these submissions, and then the bell rings and you switch and you go with somebody else two seconds later, and you're, you're just a punching bag. Like you just, you know, so it's very easy to get humbled and learn how to lose and, you know, take responsibility and ownership for that, which helps translate for me over to there. So I'm always interested for guys that are CEOs like yourself of what are they passionate about? That's their thing. And for you, I have heard that it is wine. 
<laughs> yeah, and that's that doesn't sound quite as healthy as jujitsu, <laughs> but but uh, it's that same sort of thing that I can sort of crawl into. And uh, it shuts out a lot of the world for me so that I can think, I can experience. It's a very sensual based experience, you know, that you're involving uh, both your taste buds and your nose and, you know, how does it feel in your mouth and that sort of thing. And for whatever reason, not the alcohol, but that's part of it, of course, um, you know, but for whatever reason, it sort of mutes the things in the background for me and brings some clarity to where I can approach them um, without hurting my own ego by doing that, you know? And so, uh, it's, it's, it's a fun pastime. Uh, it really is. And, um, you know, it's a very intellectual pastime, which is why to me, it's a, it's an addictive pastime. You know, it's something that I have to step away from consciously sometimes because I get so into the fact that I can, I can, uh, you know, I can blind taste something down to 150 mile radius or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, I have a lot of fun with, um, with pairing this wine with this and showing it to people who don't know how to do that and have their minds, you know, really open up and expand. Those are the kinds of things that are super interesting and fun uh, for me. And um, yeah, I'm a second level sommelier. I'm a winemaker. We've made about uh, five different wines uh, so far and um, yeah, always really fun. That's awesome, man. You know, I, I love that you said that because when somebody has something passionate like that, that just helps them reset or just refocus or dig deep into something else, I think on the surface, people don't see when somebody actually is really passionate about it. Like, you know, you, you hear, oh, he's a jujitsu guy. Oh, he's a meathead. He just likes the, no, like the mental stuff, the technique, the community, like it's the last part of that that I see because I'm so deep into it. And the same, you know, hey, oh, why? Oh, he likes to drink. No, there's intellectual parts of that. There's an art to that. And that stuff gets me really excited. I love learning and I could see how that could become a really deep dive. Yeah. And, and you get it exactly. And, and you know, the big mistake that we make with our passions is we try to turn them into businesses. <laughs> and, and, and I have been thwarted in my attempts to do that over the years. And I'm so glad about that, right? I was going to start a wine bar one time and all of that sort of thing. And you take what you're really passionate about and you make it your master. And then you start to resent it and you don't enjoy it anymore. And you've robbed yourself of a source of joy. I don't know. If, I mean, maybe I said the wrong thing. I don't know if you own a whole bunch of jujitsu places or something like that, no, but no, it, right. it can be a thing that, that people do and say, well, I, I, they say, follow your passion. I'm going to do this thing. But then you're in that e-myth where your passion becomes your job and then nobody likes their job, you know? So, yeah, I, I literally had that conversation with one of my friends who became a, a fighter and a, a professional jujitsu competitor and then was opening a, uh, a gym actually right when COVID started, but I was like, Hey man, jujitsu is always the thing that you go to, to relax. And now that's your business. Like, how do you, and he was like, Oh yeah, I never thought about that. Like the thing that I was using to escape the business is now the business. I better find something else, you know? And so yeah. I, exactly, man, you, you got to find a way to do that now. Oh, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Anderson, but my, my buddy Clint Coons, I'll give him a shout out. He's turned me on to some great wines over the years, every, every Christmas or new year's, He'll send me a couple of bottles and, and every year it's just something amazing. And I think last year he sent me a bunch of bottles of Opus One and that has become my... Hey, that's a good friend you have right there. <laughs> yeah. And also you shouldn't be I'm drinking it. You, no, you should no. be... No, you should be saving that. Yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> that Opus One is a, uh, is a very highly structured and elegant wine designed to age. 
And uh, we, I mean, we open hours from time to time because you can't keep it until your deathbed and drink a bunch of wine on your deathbed, you know? <laughs> so I get that. Um, that's the, the movie Sideways, if you ever saw that. That was the point of the movie was, you know, the guy was saving these bottles of wine and he never had life experience nearly enough you know, nearly perfect enough to open those bottles and collectors get into that. We are down to one bottle that we collect right now. One, one investment grade model. We've drank all the rest of them wow. for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Anniversaries come up, date nights, you know, that sort of thing will break out the stuff. And we've, we've whittled the collection down now to something that's, um, that is one, it was the wine of the year in 2005, Joseph Phelps uh, insignia cap. That's the only bottle that I won't open right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I actually I went to, to Italy and I went to Montepulciano and I Hell sent yeah. him some wine and I was like, what are you drinking? And he was like, eight years from now. And I was like, what? So that, that does make yeah. a lot of sense. So uh, Brunello is our go-to celebration wine, for sure. My wife, it's like Scooby Snacks for my wife. You know, she she loves Brunello and she'll do anything for an, a, a nice Brunello. So, yeah. Nice. I'm going to put that on the list. Maybe I'll send him a Brunello this year. I'll get him back something nice. Yeah, he would. Uh, if he knows his stuff, he would really he would really love that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you yeah. just another one that I'm loving right now. Oren Swift is the is the uh, big producer, you know, and he's got all the sexy wines out there. Uh, for Christmas, I got my wife a case of uh, Seven Years in the Desert. We liked it, but he's got one called Mercury Dime, which is um, it, it, to me is as good as Opus. And I know people will totally disagree with me on that, but it has a lot more of the Rutherford style uh, uh, dust. They call it Rutherford dust. Um, you know, that that. Uh, harsh finish on the back end that makes the whole thing really nice to drink. And Opus is a lot more elegant than that. Two different styles of wine. Um, uh, Opus, two or $300 a bottle, depending on what year you're buying it. Mercury Head, I think is 60 to 90 bucks a bottle. So, uh, uh, and, and comparable juice, in my opinion, I think I could pour them both and have uh, people that know what they're talking about, enjoy both of them equally. That's huge. I'm going to try that. I do like most of Orange Swift's wine and Every time I go to Hawaii, his, his stuff just seems, like the more variety of his wine seems to be everywhere. And I like the stories behind his stuff, like him not being able to sell the, the eight years in the desert for a while because of this, the selling of the prisoner and uh, Machete. Yeah. He's got all his past girlfriends on the bottle so you can collect all of them. Like it's, it's cool. Are there a lot of brands or you know, companies that, that have a little bit of those sub stories? Not enough. That? Not enough. In, in the wine business, first of all, it's hard to be authentic. Uh, because there's so much regulation around it. But, um, you know, the, that business is a very old tradition. It's an agricultural business. We don't think about it in those terms. This is an agricultural and retail business. That's it. And so uh, if, you, if you make a misplaced bet, it can cost you a lot. And so they aren't typically very risky on that. Um, uh, Swift is a good example of coming in and saying, you know what, I'm not doing a single um, a, a single grape wine. I'm going to do a blend because I'm good at blending and, and, and I'm going to make a wine that I like to drink. And, and I'm going to give it a fun story on the back end and that sort of thing. There's a guy up in um, a Jim Prosser who's up in Willamette Valley of Oregon, and he makes um, uh, a lot of good wines and his wines all have stories. They all have, he's got one, it, which is a really raw sort of wine, a Pinot Noir called the Provocateur. And he names it after his grandfather, who was sort of in and out of jail and, you know, like minor offenses and things like that. And he was always like the provocateur at the party, you know, and he had tumultuous relationships with his his uh, grandmother and his you know kids and uncles and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it, it draws me into it. it. That's the kind of thing I want. I think everybody wants some authenticity, no matter what it is. 
Yeah, I love that, man. Um, so circling back now, CEO burnout obviously is, is the fundamentals of what you're doing here. For somebody listening to this, what's maybe just a, a couple of things that they could do or maybe not do to avoid going down that road? Because I, you know, I think if they haven't felt it yet, they're going to at some point. Yeah, it's a thing that happens. And um, I, I'll tell you, burnout is very simple to understand and hard to fix. Um, first off, you know, we have a natural store of energy. Uh, every day we get up and we hopefully are, you know, as energetic as we're going to be that day. And then we have a choice as to where we put that energy all day long. Uh, there are hacks for it. So you might do jujitsu right off uh, the bat in the morning. I don't. I have quiet time and reading time and spiritual time, that sort of thing. And that levels my energy level out all day long. And it makes more energy available for me in the afternoon, you know, that sort of thing. So we all have our little hacks on how do we maximize our energy all day long. Um, when we go to spend that energy, we can spend it on purpose or off purpose. And, and the real answer is we do both all day long, right? Um, the more time on purpose we can spend, the less we burn the energy. If we do a lot of off-purpose work and you've walked out of the office at the end of the day, pulling your hair out and say, what did I even do today? I didn't accomplish anything, <laughs> right? I touched everything. It didn't accomplish anything. Uh, as opposed to the day where you walk in and you said, I killed these three things. I'm going to let myself go home early at 2.30 or I'm going to go hit some balls at the golf course or go to jujitsu or whatever. You know, you, we've both felt those kinds of days all the time. The difference between them is off purpose and on purpose. And once you burn the purpose energy field down, um, uh, then you get into a place of burnout. And that's when you're having to take energy from other sources and put in to living your life. And, and you and I make that compromise with ourselves saying, this is going to be a short-term thing. I'll just do it right now, right? I'll just have two bottles of wine at dinner to get relaxed and get my energy level back up. I will just do, uh, you know, ignore my kids for two hours while I do email in the afternoon today. I'm only going to do it once. And then you look back and you've been making those little compromise decisions, death by a thousand cuts for two years, five years, 10 years, 15. I work with clients who have done it for 15 years. Okay. And the solution is to stop doing it. Well, that's easy to say and hard to accomplish. And most of my consulting work is figuring out how do we get people doing things on, how do we get the CEO doing the on-purpose things and making his off-purpose things the purpose for other people. And that's what organizational design is all about. Man, that's such a great answer. I love that. This is, this is going to be one that I keep going back and listening to and taking notes on. You got a lot of great value here. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate um, that as far as consulting and stuff. So talk a little bit about your companies and how can people work with you? What kind of services do you offer for companies and CEOs and real estate guys? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I offer coaching, you know, a lot of uh, CEOs come in and say, I don't think I need to do some huge project with you, but I just want you to coach me when I need it and that sort of thing. And, and we end up in business together for three, five, seven years, you know, that kind of stuff. It, it becomes a little bit of the, uh, you know, the psychologist couch, almost like, ah, my person did this. Can you believe this? And, and the really good times that I've been able to provide value have been in those, um, those kinds of organizations that come in and say, or those kinds of CEOs that come in and say, I had no idea that this thing was about to blow up. It's blowing up. Could be a good thing. Could be a bad thing. I need somebody that I can 100% trust has my interests at heart because I'm not even sure I have my interests at heart right now can you walk me through and guide? And you're this really good um, 
sounding board for them and you're trying to improve their decision making and and improve their perspective and visibility into the impact of those decisions. So we do coaching programs. Uh, I only ever take six uh, six clients at a time for coaching and uh, you know typically stay pretty filled on that. In 2020, I went to every one of my uh, consulting uh, clients on the coaching side and said, I'm going to release you from your contracts this year because I need to work in my businesses and make sure that we're doing well there. But I also think you need to do that. And instead of me telling you the whole, the whole process that we've been together that you need to be above here, this year is an exception. We may need to be down in the weeds this year to make sure that we navigate this totally unprecedented time. All of them did that. All of them have come back as clients in 2021, which is a good thing. But um, you know that was a just a principal decision that I needed to make uh, last year for them, so that they were freed up. They still called when they needed me. That was no problem. I just wasn't going to charge them because I thought that that money needed to stay in the company so that they could stay in business, even if that was just a little bit of money. So that's the first thing we do. The second thing people come and say, I want more of sort of a productized experience. You know, I want something I can go through and get out of. Right? I don't want to sign an open ended thing that I don't fully understand where it's going to go. And that's totally uh, comfortable for me. So what I do is a something called strategic action planning. So, um, you know, we take the, um, the management team offsite, we do all of that, the sort of thing. We don't do team building, but that kind of thing, but the deliverable at the end of it, um, I don't have one to show you here with me. The deliverable at the end of it is a, uh, an annual calendar broken out into 10 different areas of focus, uh, and expressed quarterly. So that, uh, you know, if we want to talk about culture, how are we going to move the needle from a a self-imposed grade of 78 to 100? You know, what cultural activities are we going to do? What actions are we going to take? Who owns that action and when is it due? And we we do that over about a three-day period. And then the roadmap for the company is there. And I do this because now I can go to the CEO and say, Everything that you said was important to get done in the business this year is on this sheet with with somebody owning it at a time when they're supposed to report back to you or to the group. Now, can you please focus on culture, people, and numbers, right? Can we do that kind of work? And it's extraordinarily empowering for the CEO to see if I just get these things done this year, my business will grow, people will grow, the culture will be better, everything will be better. And I'm going to be a better CEO. I'm going to work on purpose way more often than off purpose. So that that process is uh, is very good. You can do it at any time of the year. People think you can only do it in December or January. You can do it any time of the year. And it's very sort of refreshing for the organization. That's awesome, man. And I, I think you just echo why you have the the main parts of that there. Your culture, obviously, is is there when you're not taking people's money. You're helping them. And the self-awareness of reflecting and saying, this is where we need to pivot for our business. I suggest you do the same. I think that's a lot of showing that you walk the walk that you talk about. So I think that's great, man. That's great advice. Thank you. Good. Appreciate you saying that. How do people find you? How do people work with you? What's the best way to get in touch with you to have a, a conversation about how you guys can work together? Yeah, the best thing is uh, our website is uh, www.trinity-blue.com, trinity-blue.com. Um, you know, there'll be some white papers there, some blog posts and that sort of thing. Um, there's a newsletter you can sign up for, which is just sort of my daily or every other day thoughts. Um, I'm a tremendous note taker, a prolific note taker. And, um, you know, I consume a lot of stuff. And so I pull the top 15, 20 things every day or every couple of days and send that out. You can sign up for that newsletter at plantyourflag.live. 
Uh, and then, you know, just it comes in the inbox. There's no charge for it. There's no list selling or anything like that. It's just, you know, if people want to see what I'm interested in and the points that I'm making and the things that I'm, you know, that I'm getting in the rooms that I'm in, um, it's a good way to experience that. So those are two good ways to sort of uh, follow along and uh, and see what's up. And then the book, of course, is available uh, at Amazon at CEO Only Does Three Things. Uh, and I would definitely appreciate uh, anybody who wants to buy it and review it. So um, it, it's uh, it's been doing very well and uh, we're happy to have it out in the market. Outstanding. And obviously anybody listening, if you go into the show notes, I will have direct links to the book and to all your websites as well. So they can just click away right on that. And um, finally, before I let you go, I always like to ask, if you had a time machine and a younger Trey came and asked for advice, knowing what you know now in life and business, what advice would you give a younger you? Uh, I would tell that person to invest a lot more in relationships with people that he thinks are going to be there forever because they're not. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, man. You've been giving me tons of value. I'm definitely going to look this back and take notes and implement a lot of the things that you're giving here because I think they're super important. And uh, any, any other final thoughts before we let you go? You know, Nick, I get asked uh, pretty frequently, what's the difference between a good CEO and a great CEO? Because I've been privileged, especially as a younger man, to be in the rooms with a lot of CEOs as they made decisions. The founder of WebMD was one of my mentors, uh, Earthlink, AOL, um, you know, lots of startups over the years. And, um, and I have noticed that there's, there's one thing that uh, great CEOs do that good CEOs maybe just don't get around to or don't know that they should be doing. And I break that one thing into two parts. Number one is preception. They have the gift of looking inside someone else and seeing something that that person hasn't seen in themselves yet. And the second part of that is evocation. They can call that out of them. They can say, you have this gift and you may not have seen it yet, but I've seen it and I'm very impressed with it. And I really think you should spend your time and effort and treasure and hard work to make it a reality for yourself because you're going to be really good at it when you do. People work for those CEOs. They stop working for those CEOs. Life intervenes or whatever. But that, the, that trait is what people remember about that CEO, the great ones, for years and years, decades and decades to come. A friend of mine, uh, he's the chairman of my advisory board that I have in my own business, worked for Jack Welch in the 70s, in Jack Welch passed last year. And when I asked my friend about it, I said, oh, you know, Jack Welch passed. And I know you guys didn't know each other. And it struck my chairman and he sat back and he said, you know, I, I didn't know Jack Welch anymore, but I sure felt like I still did because of how he treated me back in the day. Tell me the story. He told me, he, in, in my words, he told me Jack precepted something in me. He called it out of me. I built my entire highly successful career on what he told me I was going to be good at. That's a great CEO right there. I don't know if I've got that, but I sure try to get it every single day. And I encourage other people to give it a shot. Even if you mess it up, it's still a good thing to, uh, to give a shot. I think that that's awesome, man. Those are great words to close on. And I think that this has been an outstanding podcast. I appreciate, again, all the value and all the, all the stuff that you've given. Uh, your book's great. I love all the cliff notes on there as well that, that really trigger all these different points to think about. And you, know, you can go in a lot of different rabbit holes on that. And it's definitely, like I said, just like the podcast, it's one of those things that I think I'm going to need to reread a couple of times a year to, okay, now this is relevant to me. Now I got to talk about hiring. Now I got to relook at my culture. Yeah. So um, I just think it's a vault of gold for any CEO building or retaining their business right now. So thank you very much for sharing. And uh, I hope you have a great day, man. It's been great sharing the, sharing an hour with you and learn a little bit about what you do and who you are. 
Thanks so much, Nick. Enjoyed chatting with you and hope to see you soon. Definitely, man. Have a great day. You too. So what's it be?